afternoon and welcome to another episode of The Work, the podcast where my co-host Gina Killey and I talk to the deep thinkers in the HR and HR tech industries about what's on their mind currently. You can expect a deeper, longer, more intense conversation here than you'll get elsewhere. Today, we're going to be talking with Anna Tavis, who is a remarkable part of our ecosystem. Anna runs a um, human capital management department of NYU. She is the author of a new book called Humans at Work, which is about how to establish a hybrid workplace. She's done all sorts of amazing stuff with performance management, and she runs this uh, graduate program. So there's there's way more than a half hour's worth of conversation here. We're going to try to compress it all in. Hi, Emma. What did I miss? Oh, I think you're spot on. It's all about the future, John. <laughs> it's all about the future, right? That's, that's right. So, so let's just jump right in. The book, Hybrid Workplaces, what's the story? Yeah, um, obviously, I mean, we have seen the fastest acceleration in the workplace of change. Um, being in this profession for quite a few years, I've been obviously seeing the rate of change getting faster and faster. And I think the pandemic was really an exponential growth in how we think about the workplace, what we do at work, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, a lot of the um, practical work in the trenches, rewiring our you know, architecture at work and how we work still needs to be done. But I think what happened in the last two years was a significant mindset shift that uh, kind of preceded a lot of in many places of um, the actual change. So usually um, having spent a, quite a few years in HR, we kind of think about this change. We uh, uh, track the trends, keep um, the finger on the pulse of um, technology, et cetera. And then we go to organizations and try to implement it. So that's where you know, change management um, used to be such a big focus. But what happened with the pandemic, it's actually people's behavior and mindsets change ahead um, of um, all of the uh, more structural changes that need to happen. And so the book that I wrote with um, my co-author, Stella Lupushore, Humans at Work and How to Rewire the Hybrid Organization is really a catch up on what the most of the workforce is ready for and has been ready for for a while with an acceleration of the pandemic, we now really have to get back to, you know, serious work and rethink our organizations and uh, position them uh, for um, the workplace that, um, again, in most uh, industries, in most places, is already um, waiting for this change to happen. I think something like 75% of the workforce works on-site in places that aren't hybrid. Doing You can't be a hybrid grocery checker. You can't be a hybrid machine. Um, does, does your work address that part of the workforce, or is this about the office worker and the changes in office work? Um, you know, the structure of the book, um, John, is not just about the workplace. We have what we call four W's uh, uh, framework. 
and fr- and that includes work. Um, so the nature of the work, and we're looking, taking kind of a historical perspective because I love to look at where we were before, even pre-industrial revolution, to where we are going. So how the nature of work and uh, is changing. The second one is workforce, and that's where we're looking at different types of workforce, not just office workers. Um, third is workplace, um, you know, way people work, how that's changing and hybrid is, is a, as one of the designs, uh, but there are other formats in which work occurs. And even for people who are working with their hands, the frontline um, employees, et cetera, how technology, for example, is changing the configuration and how uh, some of that work is now done with computers, let's say, um, that used to be manufacturing. Now, the automation that's coming in, robotics that are coming in are going to change the nature even of the most um, um, tactical, most on-site work. And then the final part, um, the, the, the fourth W, which we think is very, very important when we're also tracking it through the ages into the future, is worth why people work, um, you know, I think in and and what we're seeing is this uh, change throughout the four W's from work to workforce to workplace and worth and how those elements like Lego blocks are changing and re- being reconfigured for different types of employment, for different types of employees and uh, what needs to be done to accommodate this changing work environment. So I, I get the sense that empathy figures largely in your in your understanding of how work is evolving. And um, for my money, that's sort of typical of 21st century management, which has a big dose of vulnerability and, and a big dose of willingness to embrace uncertainty in public. Um, tell me a little bit about how empathy figures into this. Um. You know, one of the, uh, one, the the central theme of the book is um, is the return to humans in the center. I think starting with the industrial revolution and uh, with scientific management uh, in the early industrial age, we kind of abandoned the humans and uh, as the machines, the first machines and combustion engine were coming in. Um, the work became kind of um, uh, separated into different uh, tasks and uh, humans were really uh, an an adjacency to those tasks, Um, especially the conveyor line, manufacturing, early manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't really about the humans. It was how humans were supporting the machines, the first machines that were coming in. And we are looking at that. Um, But then what's happening now is the machines are getting more and more intelligent and taking over their repetitive mundane tasks in their robotics, for example, but even simple uh, cognitive tasks. Um, Some of the, you know, data science um, and uh, some of the research tasks are being outsourced accounting work. Uh, even as we know, the, the white collar jobs, um, some of the, what they're doing with data um, is being um, now uh, replaced by the machines. So our thesis is with that kind of transition, 
we are going to look at the um, those um, human qualities um, that are currently sort of intangible, or at least have been intangible for um, the majority of time. And uh, the new technology like AI are now tapping into the emotional side. There's a whole effective computing um, area that's coming in, um, evolutionary AI, and uh, more biology, neuroscience, physiology are coming in to better understand what makes humans such unique um, workers, producers, or participants in in the universe, in the ecosystems. And and then, you know, at the end, we are projecting out that um, we are going to be interacting, and we already are interacting with very intelligent machines that will have uh, the sensing, the feeling, the emotional capabilities, maybe not right away at the level of humans. So uh, like the, the uh, chapter on uh, empathy, for example, we are tracing all the way to um, what's called AE, artificial empathy, and how those types of tools are going to be integrated into the workflow and the machines are going to be those sensing and feeling and um, emotionally intelligent at some level uh, participants and uh, partners in the work process. So that's that's kind of the trajectory we create from humans being attachments to the machines to humans being fully integrating and partnering with the machines that will be able to create relationships with the machines through Uh, these new capabilities that we are now able to recreate um, to be, to make machines companions to the humans. I I have a question. I have to jump in here. How, How many, how many employees, how many workers are actually ready to have a relationship with a machine in the workplace? Um, Uh, Yeah, there are many more than you think. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there are certainly areas where these empathetic technologies are being brought in. I mean, this is the area of artificial intelligence that has been in development for quite some time, and they're beginning to get commercialized. And the first areas um, of of deployment of these machines is working with the aging, for example. There are examples of these robots becoming uh, companions to the elderly. Um, Several experiments happening in retirement homes uh, where these um, machines are being introduced. And obviously, obviously in the experimental phase, and I can explain the complexities of what's being looked at. But what we are finding is that humans being left oftentimes alone, loneliness, as you know, is a, is a huge epidemic, especially with the elderly, that humans develop incredible relationships, almost like with the pets, um, with these um, uh, intelligent robots uh, having conversations, etc. intelligent interface. And um, you know, I've been looking at some of the videos, for example, of some of these communities of uh, re- retirement communities that adopted these various robots um, as part of their community and taking care of them. And um, and they have names and the big discussion from the ethical perspective in that area of technology right now is whether 
we should be creating these robots in the image of humans, because as you know, some of them look very human. They have their specific features, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So that's a big kind of ethical conversation because humans do get attached. And even just to take it all the way to um, some of the discussions, uh, they're around their rights. You know, if we are going to create intelligence sensing and self-aware machines, which is where AI is, is heading toward very fast, you know, do those machines have the rights? And in the book, what, what I did, I traced a uh, human relationship with uh, the animals um, all the way from how animals were just perceived to be out there and to the development of uh, animal rights movements mm -hmm. and now laws being introduced about protection of animals, et cetera. As you know, it's it's a big shift in awareness among human beings around who the animals are and how we need to treat them. So the big ethical conversation in the in the technology community is whether these computers will eventually also have should have some rights because they are going to be intelligent, aware, and sensing. That that is fascinating. Just fascinating. John, over to you. Yeah, let me let me just take Gene's uh, question a step further. Um, partnership with a machine you know, is, is sort of one thing to imagine a cuddly teddy bear of a robot that says nice things to you when you're lonely. But if I'm doing some serious work and I'm partnered with a machine, the question of how one effectively argues with the machine, because machines the best that they can do is have a probabilistic answer to a problem. And so there's some regular chance that they're wrong. Um, but arguing with the machine is, is fraught. It's really fraught because they sit on all the data. They have the capacity to process the data. And if you go to your boss and you say, you know, I disagreed with the machine for the 17th time this week, you're liable to get a deaf ear from the boss because machines are typically, uh, because of the way things have evolved, just as you've noted, machines have been the center of the work. And because they've been the center of the work, they become the authority on whether or not the work is done properly. And so my question is, to echo genes, do we really have workers who are ready to work with uh, uh, robots in partnership? They're they're already working with partnership in, in partnership. Um, you know, um, for example, um, uh, MetLife. I, I spoke with um, the head of talent for MetLife, uh, a, a big insurance company, global insurance company, and they said they say that they are beginning to integrate these bots. Um, that was right prior to the pandemic literally physically sitting there in the workspaces where, you know, the, um, the workers are doing, you know, the, um, uh, the workers are doing their regular day jobs so that it becomes, uh, um, it becomes um, seamless. And uh, what you're referring to, John, is kind of very early stages of um, machine uh, AI development, which is rules-based, you know, what we're looking at right now is like um, chatbots, et cetera. My, our students are developing chatbots. These are all rules-based machines with 
very like stage one. We are looking at a per, per, uh, in terms of developing um, um, consciousness and awareness and uh, ability to learn. We are looking at seven generations right now in, on the horizon, and one of those is the ability to learn fa- faster. So the argument you're going to have with a machine is going to be that the machine is going to be able to run multiple scenarios as you are proposing yours and come back with an analysis of, um, you know, of why certain scenarios will be preferred. So, and that will be the nature of the argument because the the machine learning as it's called now or artificial intelligence, it has the capacity to process uh, at the, you know, fraction of the time, so many different options and scenarios um, and it's already being developed. I mean, the, the generations of, H- of um, technology that, um, uh, that is beginning to get available to us, like, for example, it's called evolutionary AI. Evolutionary AI is not looking at one way of doing things, but looking at multiple scenarios at the same time, which a human brain cannot process. So they're really coming up with, um, um, with technologies uh, whose um, cognitive capacity uh, by far uh, exceeds what the humans are able to do. Um, so, so, so in that in that case, then it's not really a partnership, right? Because because you've just attributed a level of uh, I, I'd, I'd hate to call it thoughtfulness, but um, a level of um, scenario processing capability that exceeds human capability. What's the role of the human in that relationship? It's making the decision. You know, the, the, you know I, I think those basic analytical skills that we are now value, valuing so much, that all of that will be just like memorizing, you know, um, different tables, you know, the, the um, multiplication tables, et cetera. Is now with a calculator, you know, I remember a big debate about whether calculators should be used at schools because we didn't want the children to be lazy. They had to be able to do it, uh, everything in their heads. And now it's not even an issue. They start using calculators from the get-go. So same thing, uh, but but that's where... This is why we wrote a book about humans at work that the role, what is going to be the role of the humans? And it's going to be making ethical decisions that have to be human centered, that have to be, um, you know, uh, because the machine is going to produce all of these options. um, But the final decision, at least at this point, needs to be uh, taken by the humans. And this is where, again, the the ethical side of um, of the business uh, is going to become really, really critical. And we're beginning to see it now uh, that if we just delegate everything to algorithms, they are agnostic a lot of times. And we have to have ethical, empathetic humans. And the reason there's empathy in there, John, is because whoever is making decisions, and we, we see it in the models of leadership, needs to keep humans in mind as a priority and be empathetic to all, you know, humanity at large, rather than just looking after the gains of a very small minority 
that controls all of those technologies. And there's a big danger there, of course. And I think these are the discussions that are happening at scale right now. And uh, now is the time because we're really on the cusp of these uh, technologies breaking into everyday life uh, with our you know, computers controlling all aspects of our lives uh, from, you know, um, handheld devices to implants and our clothing that's going to be all wired up with data being collected on a daily basis. So how are we going to structure the decision process and priorities is top of mind And what we wrote about was, you know, how to prioritize the importance and the urgency to prioritize those human focused of human based decisions. Where are you taking instead of ideas? I still don't understand where you get workers who are able to digest multiple scenarios and recommendations from an AI and make decisions without falling prey to being second guessed when the machine turns out to have been right and your decision turns out to be wrong. That that seems like that seems like the the hiccup in the process. I think we're um, talking, uh, yeah, we're talking futures here, though. I, I'd yeah. love to bring our conversation back to to what we're what we're dealing with now, if that's okay. Totally, <laughs> totally. I, we, you know, we we I I start all the way with uh, from uh, with the Stoics <laughs> and philosophy. You know, it's everything in the book. We're looking at you know, what work was, what Aristotle said about work, and then we take it all the way to that exponential growth and and humans at work in general. So happy to talk about the present. Yeah, absolutely. I, because, Anna, I know you've done a fair amount of thinking and, and certainly writing. Your thought leadership is well documented on some of the, the aspects aspects of hybrid workforces and remote work and remote project uh, per- performance management in particular. And and so there might be points of intersection, by the way, uh, between that and, and what you're seeing as you look at the future of work. But I'm, I'm, I'm sensing that there's a revolution going on. To, to a large extent, it's being driven by the workforce itself, and that employers have to play catch up here. Um, so, so what's the employer's role in all of this and how quickly can they possibly move? Yeah, I think you are absolutely right. As I said, um, the pandemic kind of accelerated the behavioral change and mindset change at scale, which is kind of unusual because um, we, we um, used to delegate those strategic decisions to consultants and experts, uh, and now it kind of happened bottom up the democratized uh, model of change. So the employers have to adjust uh, between their uh, expectations and needs of the workers and uh, and what is required by the workplace. And, uh, and, and what uh, is happening, I don't think that remote is the solution. I am, I am not seeing it in the data that are coming in. The, I think we're talking about creating flexibility in the workplace. That's why hybrid is probably going to be the um, ultimate prevalent solution 
Uh, and there will be a spectrum, unlike where we are coming from, where the majority of people were um, anchored at their desks and had to commute hours to be in the office a certain number of time. Now, what everyone is trying to solve for is how to create flexibility. And it's not necessarily that everyone is going to be remote. In fact, we are not seeing it. And the big question, and I live in, in New York City, the big question is um, why are we still seeing people going, uh, expected to be in the office, et cetera, et cetera. And my answer is because the majority of younger workers are in matchbox apartments and that's what their home is, right? It's not like every home, especially in the younger generation of people who move to New York City to be a member of a, a larger community that is stimulating and exciting and et cetera. Even the fact that the majority of people, at least before, used to meet their um uh, their partners in the workplace, even though, you know, from the HR perspective, we can have a different conversation <laughs> about that. But but what I am seeing in the data, it's the it's more of a um, more senior, more established, uh, uh, established uh, managers who don't want to be in the office and the younger people do want to have uh, time together and working on teams, et cetera, and having a face-to-face -face time. So I think the solution here is how to develop flexibility around uh, uh, where work um, needs to happen and when. And that's what companies are trying to get their heads around. And depending on the industry, because there are lots of um, issues still remain to be unresolved. We know exactly where the worker's mind is, flexibility, flexibility, flexibility. But there are lots of hardwired issues that needs, need to be adjusted to accommodate the most flexible schedule. Uh, for example, um, cybersecurity. Um, I think cybersecurity is, is um, hugely important, as we know. It's, it's, a, it's a one of the probably number one risk right now in certain industries. And um, being in, in New York, for example, the center of financial services, a very uh, an industry very vulnerable to um, cyber risk, right? So that's one of the reasons that uh, some of the financial services employers, for example, still expect their employees to be back at least the, for the majority of their time. I think what we have not figured out yet, because cybersecurity has been sort of also distributed and left to the uh, decisions at the level of a particular enterprise, that's a huge you know, government commitment that needs to happen there and a lot of other series of decisions that need to be put in place to provide the necessary protections so that people can take their computer and, and work from home or in a Starbucks. I mean, imagine all of these protected computers um, in a coffee shop, et cetera, when on a, an unprotected, um, even if with the VPNs, et cetera. So I think, I think what we're gonna see, we know where the trend is going. We are going to be solving for those issues one at a time. Uh, but uh, the train has left the station. It is going to be about flexibility. And right now the expectation is that some of the 
some of the time is going to be spent in the office and some of the time is going to be spent elsewhere. Uh, companies are making decisions around um, remote first or office first. Again, it's going to be a spectrum. It's going to be a spectrum from different industries. It's going to be a spectrum for different roles even in the organization. And it's going to be uh, you know, where we are, it's almost like, and we have an image in the book of a dial where there is a dial hand that goes from fully in the office and fully remote. And that decision is going to be made along those dial, you know, uh, stops, uh, depending on what kinds of specific context the organization and, the, and a particular worker will need to address. I know it's very generic. It's easier to say everyone goes hybrid, but I think there's a series of decisions that will need to be made to make it safe and to make it productive and to make it uh, fit both the needs of the organization and the needs of the employee. Well, as you've just mentioned, Anna, I, there are other parts of the business that need to catch up, and cybersecurity is a great example. Um, I know in speaking with uh, employees of financial services firms, many of which are are in Manhattan, uh, they're going into the office and sitting there on Zoom calls all day long. So, you know, which when you're a young employee kind of is frustrating for them because obviously from a productivity standpoint, they feel they could do that elsewhere. But um, but there are other portions of the business that have to catch up. Cybersecurity is one. I think HR is one also. I think these are new ways of, of thinking for HR. Uh, John, I see you're shaking your head. Well, you know, I, I wonder... I wonder how you actually solve the problem, right? Because because there's there's good reason to be together. There, there are things that happen when you're together, but we've gotten so mediated in the last couple of years that um, um, the, the the process of getting people physically together will mean cutting out technology rather than adding in technology, as near as I can tell, and. I don't know about you, but but you'd have to pry my phone out of my cold dead fingers before. <laughs> I hear that's before. what funeral directors do these days. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right, and so, and so there's this there's this question of the forcing function that's going to be necessary for things to move forward. That that that, that suggests an older form of management that may not work very well with this environment. So Good so. Point. So how do you get it done is, I guess, the question here. Yeah. And, you know, John, I think that technology is not going to go away. It's just going to become invisible. Uh, it's going to be so blended in, as I mentioned, you know, the robots ne working next to you. Um, but um, uh, what the off. So here is a dilemma. Um all of these big tech firms, uh, Google, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, you know, who build these big campuses in Silicon Valley, they were buying real estate in New York at the, 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 the largest uh, commercial real estate deals were made here at the time of the pandemic where whole blocks 
were purchased by these big firms. And you would think, why is that the case? They're the ones who seem to be naturally lending themselves to a remote working, right? Not, but if you start talking to the architects, which I tend to do, there are lots of amazing architects here as well. And you think of what they are working on and they're working on enhanced ventilation systems for safety, um, you know, no touch, uh, you know, access. It's so, and they're talking about neuroscience. They're talking about this whole trend in architecture, biophilia, building nature into the environments. They're talking about lighting. They're talking about specific furniture that they're building to, um, you know, enhance productivity, et cetera. So, what those offices are going to represent are not what we think of the pre-pandemic office, which is a cubicle, but they're going to be special places for people to come, relax, socialize, and have that experience. They're focused on experience, plus from the even physiological and neurological perspective, conducive to the best working conditions that they can create in those buildings. Plus, obviously, knowing, you know, who their working population is, again, I'm referring to these particular employers, you know, the density will play a role because, like, if we can get to micromobility and really reimagine cities, there's a whole, you know, system change that needs to happen that people don't have to drive two and a half hours one way, but I can uh, jump on the bike and, and take a ride. Um, you know, that's that's why the whole systems will need to realign so that, you know, the offices are not going to be what they're going to be. Because when we talk about remote, we always think about that the office stayed static from where we left it two years ago. Not at all. The smart employers are investing into creating very special places, which means if you think about flexibility of, of and the workplace, again, focused on the human, you know, what's, what's making humans tick? What's making them excited and have a positive experience? You know, if you take that perspective as an employer, you can do wonders with the office so that people come in voluntarily rather than, you know, recreating these types of conditions in, the, in every home is going to be almost impossible. And unaffordable to the majority of people. Yeah, very good point. Uh, you know, regretfully, we are out of time today. Um, John, any closing comments before we segue over to Anna one last time? Oh, I, Anna, we, we need to get you back here to have the next part of this conversation, <laughs> which is from today till 15 years from now when the workplace looks like you're imagining it and how we navigate that particular set of hurdles. It's been so great to have you here. Thanks. Any closing remarks? And would you tell people how to get a hold of you? Yeah, thank you so much. I um, yeah, obviously I'm on LinkedIn, um, and that's where the best place to reach me. Uh, John, I will have to come back because I don't think you are convinced. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a lot to convince yeah, John, yeah, yeah. as you I know. You have a <laughs> battle of the minds. Uh, yeah, we can do, yeah, we can I'm, do that. I'm, I'm, we can do that I'm in the still next episode. For my flying car. You'll be surprised. You'll be surprised. I will be delighted to be back. 
you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I post all of the, uh, a lot of uh, public speaking, et cetera, all as on LinkedIn. And um, I'm very excited about the future. I know that sometimes we go through these dark times, but I think we are going to reemerge much smarter, much more intelligent, and a lot more empathetic to each other. Thanks so much for being here, Lana. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. We learned a lot from you today. And that's a wrap for this episode of The Work.